there are a number of initiatives I think that are taking place at a more kind of enterprise level within corporations to think about how can we better support or create a more attractive, supportive environment for the people that that we want to retain in the organisation. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. In today's episode, we talk with Claire Louise McSherry. Claire Louise is a partner at Russell Reynolds Associates, leading their technology and operations leadership advisory into financial services customers. Claire Louise is a diversity and inclusion champion with a passion for hiring diverse board and executive leadership teams and building succession pipelines of female and underrepresented minority leaders. Claire Louise chats with us about what she calls the great reflection, assessing the current work environment and how recruitment and retention has changed in recent years with an eye towards how the after effect of this pandemic has been the way people approach their employment. She discusses different workplace perspectives compounded by digital acceleration, business models, overall corporate vision and strategies, as well as customer behavior, sustainability and social impact. I know I keep saying it, but there's a lot in this episode. So I am now recording. Right. Okay. And I'm picking up a really great siren. In the yeah, background. me too. I that's heard that. It's, that's because it's real. It's not coming for you, is it? It could be coming for me. That sounds like an ambulance rather than a police car. <laughs> <laughs> I've been chased Although. by both. <laughs> yeah, well. Okay. Is <laughs> it my good to go today? <laughs> You're right. You really are different in person. Mm. Okay. So, um, we are recording. We'll see how this all works out. Um, and we'll start with... Welcome, Claire Louise. Great to have you join us today. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you and in person. I know, all together in one room. Goodness. Claire Louise, can you give us a quick intro about you and your role? I am a partner at Russell Reynolds. I lead our kind of technology and operations leadership advisory capability into financial services. So that's the universal banks all the way through to the fintechs, the startups and the disruptors. So then from a career perspective, how did you end up here and how did you get started? So I think like most people, I fell into recruitment. It wasn't a planned strategy from a career standpoint. I went to university and studied environmental policy, geography, which I really enjoyed. And I thought I'd end up working for the National Geographic or something like that, uh, or be a journalist or, I don't know, do something about the planet. And I just by chance, actually through a friend, fell into recruitment and started working in Clapham Junction for an organisation called Brook Street, so High Street Recruitment. I was there for about 18 months and then moved to the city. I was interested in technology, so I've always been a little bit geeky at heart and started working for a boutique search firm focused on financial markets, which is where the interest in tech and FS came from. And, and I haven't looked back, actually. What was it you wanted to do when you left school then? I think I wanted to save the world. Well, very noble. Aren't all recruiters sort of superheroes with capes. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, we are changing the world, oh. but in different ways. With your superpowers. Yeah, With yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Through the leadership. So looking back then, what would you say was your career-defining moment? I'm not sure there's necessarily one. I think the first one probably came quite early and actually before I went to university. So as a kid growing up, my mum always used to make me work, which at the time for me was horrific. <laughs> that said... 
through all the holidays, you know, she used to send me to France. I'd have to be an au pair. I'd work in kitchens. I'd work in restaurants. I've worked in stores. And I just think that work ethic and, and working the whole way through school, really, from a very early age, probably is the foundation, really, of me as an individual and in the workplace, which I think has stood me in really good stead. So I think that I'm probably influenced heavily by that in terms of my childhood. And then leaving university and falling into recruitment as I did, and also working for an organisation like Brook Street, which is a high street recruitment company. I just think the disciplines, foundations, realising that actually I love being with people, solving problems. It was really rewarding and I really enjoyed it. So I think that probably might be my second one. And then I think there've been so many actually in each place. So I worked for a boutique. It was a startup. We built the organization from scratch. It was hugely successful. I led the global technology practice. And then on the back of that, I then went and created my own company, which I led for 13 years. And I think probably to run your own business, and this was around 2008. So just as the financial crisis was coming. So for many, probably not a great time, but actually in many ways, a really good time to allow you to be bold and differentiate, probably similar to possibly what some companies may experience going forward with what's happening now. And it was just extremely rewarding and exciting. And I loved every minute of it. And I did that for 13 years. What would you say was your proudest moment from a professional perspective? I think it probably is setting up my own business. Yeah, yeah. It's so unique. And it's, it's quite an adjustment to go from being an employee, being part of a large corporate, to then being the creator of employment, it's quite a shift. I think that probably would be one of my proudest moments. But then that said, if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be working at Russell Reynolds as a partner, leading a great business, doing great work that goes way beyond what I was doing in my own firm that was very kind of UK, European focused. Whereas I think to take that experience on a global stage and particularly with my love of diversity and inclusion, I'm really proud about that. Great answer. Great answer. Right. Let's move on to our deep dive. I can't do the music. I appreciate that you tried. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, that gets cut. Right. um, So, Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right. uh, Let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So you can't go a day without seeing posts from friends and colleagues on LinkedIn about new jobs, new roles, new companies. And there's been a lot of said in this period that you were in the the great resignation. And I don't know whether that's evolved a little now, but what's your take on this? Is it clever press and a headhunter's dream or is it something else? I don't think it is clever press. I think on the back of the pandemic, I think that was right at the time. You know, we'd all spent time at home. We'd lost friends, loved ones. We didn't see it coming. And I think to be working from home in that way for a sustained period of time. For most of us, you know, me included, you you kind of stand back and reflect and think about what's important. And I think possibly some organisations may have coped better with that than others. Some individuals would have coped better than others. It was natural for people to reflect in that situation and then kind of think about their career choices. And as a consequence of that, I think what we saw were individuals pivoting towards purpose, social responsibility, community, giving back to society, rather than necessarily some of the different motivations we've seen historically for career choices. We are further on, though, and I think there was the the great resignation. And then for me, I called it the great reflection, as we talked about the last time we met. But I think probably now the focus needs to be about retention. So the markets have changed significantly since the pandemic. You know, there's 
digital acceleration, this razor focus on customer centricity, hyper-personalization. We're all used to consuming product services platform more more easily than we have done before. And that's driven quite a lot of change in the in the industry. And as a consequence of that, we've seen quite a lot of CEO board movement, then CIO, COO movement as a consequence. So I I think the market's been extremely dynamic and there's a huge demand for technology skills all around the world. Now, that may change and I think will we'll, we'll adjust given the climate we're currently in and, and we're entering. Equally, great talent will always be hired no matter what the economic situation. And so I, I think we need to be thinking about succession planning, retention of great talent so that you're not losing your great technology leaders and technologists, actually, to, to to competitors or even actually to different industries, which which is something that we're seeing quite a lot of at the minute. One of the things that we we've talked about before is the attractiveness of the financial services industry globally to attract new talent in. When there are brand issues and logo issues and and from DNR, you know, diversity and inclusion, and a lot of the tech companies have seemingly got it better in terms of being able to attract that talent. Do you see that at the senior levels as well? I think so. I think there's been a drain from within financial services to other to other industries. And I think it's because many senior individuals that we would know, other other CIOs or, or CEOs, are, have been or are attracted to taking their experience that they've gained within financial services and applying that to, to different industry sectors. And I think technology, some of the consumer industries are appealing and and compelling. I think they go in cycles. And I think that's what we're experiencing too. So I think possibly five, six years ago, the technology companies in particular were super appealing to everybody. And, And I think having seen individuals make the move from either banks or fintechs into some of the tech firms, you're now seeing people coming out of the technology companies too. So I don't think any organization is nece- or industry is necessarily perfect from a, cu- from a cultural standpoint. But I do think some of the technology companies in particular do struggle with diversity and, and retaining diverse talent. Yep. And that's, I think that's well, well, well publicized yep, too. Yep, I, I agree, I agree. And, and certainly I agree on the almost the cultivation of, of people. We see a lot of people moving from tech companies into sort of fairly senior roles in, in the banks to drive that technology agenda because they're used to operating in a way that's different. And equally, the tech companies are trying to attract com- people back into, from the industry, the variety of industry, not just banking and, and, and financial services, but right across from manufacturing back into the tech in order to give them that, that industry-specific knowledge to go and then talk to their customers. And what we're also seeing are the, the big banks acquiring the fintechs yes. as a quicker route to market when we think about digitisation. Yeah, it, it is quicker. There's no doubt about it. Yep. So, so for folks that are... Actually, I'm, I'm sure... I'm, sure <laughs> I'm, I'm very conscious of the sirens outside, so... I, 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 I don't know I'm here. They don't know... <laughs> Is that why the blinds are down? That's why they're going round and round. You notice they're going round and round the block. <laughs> He's in there somewhere. <laughs> I told you I used to live around here, didn't I? They've, yes. they've, worked, they've found out I'm back. <laughs> they've all come my, for you. All my previous misdemeanours when I was a teenager. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, 
there's some sort of statute and limitations or something. Um, so then, for this kind of the the reflection and and resignation kind of thing, then again, is do you see this is about money or advancement or work life balance or not getting on enough on the corporate ladder or purpose or what do you think is like kind of in the heart of that reflection piece? I think it's probably a combination of all of it. I wonder whether on the on the back of the pandemic and not just the pandemic actually just thinking about climate CEO activism inclusion diversity there are some key themes that have been growing in momentum for a sustained period of time and the younger generation the next generation are very thoughtful about those themes uh, and it's really important to them to be able to to look at major corporations and see that their board is diverse that the organization is committed to the environment and the planet and that it's giving back to the communities that it serves and so i think over time we we've seen this adjustment or shift in what in what individuals value and i think that has had a broader impact on society and and the and the generations so i th- i think people are are continue to be motivated by how do i develop as an individual what is an organization doing for me in terms of my career prospects but equally i think there's a an acknowledgement that you want to work for an organization that has meaning and is having an impact on society and i and i think and i think that has changed i don't think i would say speak for myself back in the day if you're working in a bank were you concerned about was the organization investing sustainably mm. i think it was probably more to do with culture environment compensation <laughs> i'm sure it was still about career opportunity to be fair but i think there has been a shift behaviorally and culturally think about the sorts of roles then that that your firm places how important is it for your candidates to look into their new prospective employer for purpose, for role models, for understanding that bigger picture versus can I do the job and is the money good? I think there has been also quite a shift too, certainly since I'd say about 2018, where the expectation from the board is to increase the representation or the voice of, let's say, technology, cybersecurity, data, digital on the board. So I think initially what we saw was a focus on inclusion and initially women on boards. And we saw the rise of the 30% club. And there are many initiatives that we all know about where we observe a shift in representation. I think beyond that now, when we think about the world we're in, and we've talked a lot about digital acceleration and the focus on customer and cybersecurity, we do notice that there is a increased demand to have more technologists, whether it's CIO by background or certainly tech-savvy leaders to join boards as non-execs, which is a growing trend and I think will only amplify over the next few years. And I think even in the US, the SEC has said that the expectation or the ask is that most major corporations have cybersecurity experience on their boards. Yeah. Well, I think we're seeing that from some of the regulators that, that around the world that are, that are asking for that or, or and asking boards to demonstrate 
that they're taking the right steps. So do you see that there's a, a move towards shorter assignments and shorter time in serving in these in these sort of big positions? Now, I don't mean to say the life expectancy, but what's the role expectancy for a CEO, CIO these days? Is it is it something that's that's reducing in time or, or is it something that is about the same as it ever was? I think it's about the same. I think it's, you know, th- you know, three and a half, four and a half years on average. I think at the moment, though, we're experiencing it's, it's a dynamic market and there's a lot of change. And so I think possibly because we're seeing a lot of CEO movement, because business models are changing, but the business strategy for organizations is changing to reflect the world we're living in and organizations are focused on how do we remain relevant going forward. I think maybe we might be skewed by that, but I um, think the expectancy is pretty much the same. I think what we are seeing, which may not necessarily be what Russell Reynolds would experience on a day-to-day basis, but just in terms of technology, I think the tenure of a technologist in role is probably less than it has been before because the market is so, so dynamic and individuals are being offered significantly more money than they are used to to move. And also I'm seeing that for female candidates in particular, actually, across industries. So I think the market is so focused across industry on hiring more women or individuals also, more individuals from historically underrepresented groups to make sure their organisations are more inclusive and representative of society. It's a smaller talent pool. And so therefore, it's supply and demand. Is that where purpose, culture, mission all come in? Or does it end up being, yeah, no, don't worry about that, we'll pay you more? I think it depends on the individual, but I think it is about purpose. I think if you are a lot of individuals that we work with, if you go into an organisation, particularly as someone who, I'm picking this up, as a female candidate, you go into an organisation, you want to see that the organisation looks more like you. You want to see people like you, whether that's on the board, on the senior leadership team and throughout the organisation. And I was in a meeting the other day, actually, with an individual and she looked at a corporation, not not through us, she was having a different conversation. And she said, like, I'm really surprised by the lack of representation on this company's board. I think this is not for me. Yeah. So I think there are many motivations and drivers, but I do think the culture, the purpose, impact and career opportunity is to play. I think it's a good and sobering thought, though, that piece about it's fine to have a policy and to try and boost underrepresented groups. But you've got to walk the talk at all levels in the organisation because if you haven't got that role model, if you haven't got a career path and if you think you're potentially joining because you're a statistic, that's not a reason to go. No one wants to be hired because they are a female, for example. You want to be hired because it's a great job and you're extraordinary and it's the right opportunity for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's no different to anyone else. Yeah. But I think from the work that that I have done in the past, even prior to joining Russell Reynolds... I think there was a time where people were focused on hiring or corporate, not people, corporations were focused on hiring females in particular in technology. And there weren't really the opportunities there for the individuals to do. It hadn't been well thought through. Absolutely. Transaction. Exactly. And, And so, and then the unfortunate outcome of that is that then those individuals don't stay. And so then you undermine your broader strategy, which doesn't serve anyone, the individual that you've hired 
and then the impact on the rest of the organization by getting it wrong. And I think organizations have learned from that and it has evolved. And, and I think corporations are more thoughtful and more sophisticated about how you onboard and create opportunities for, for, for individuals. But I think there's probably still more work to be done. Allied to that slightly, one of the things that we talk about in particularly that's evident, I think more in the US than it is perhaps in Europe at the moment, is the move to the, the gig economy. People are sort of moving to much more, we used to call it consultancy-based or contractor-based or whatever you know what the language is. But the acquisition of talent for a specific piece of work rather than bring the talent into the organisation from a career perspective, bring in that disruptive influence, bring in that capability. Now, there's some organisations, it's very difficult to be successful unless you join the organisation because you need to be in the DNA flow. Other organisations, it's actually beneficial to be outside of that DNA flow in order to, to execute because you can execute through that. Is that something that you're observing more or is it just at the moment we see it in the US? I think you're right. I think we do. It is more mature in the US. I think probably more prevalent outside of financial services because I think the regulatory environment probably doesn't lend itself to having gig working. And also, as an interim or a contractor or as a consultant, it's hard, to your point, to influence. But you're not, not you're not part of the DNA flow. Yeah. But there are some practical implications too, where you're not responsible for the performance or the pay of the individuals you're leading, and or you don't have the budgetary accountability. So that I think it's harder to be as effective. But I think as a broader theme, you know, you see these platforms that are now pretty prevalent across industry for for gig working. I have actually several friends who are gig workers. And I think I saw something in the in the FT the other day that Spain was supportive of more gig working and individuals being able to be, to base themselves out of Spain. So I think there's definitely something in it. It's just, is it here to stay? Or, or, is or, it a wave? Or, yeah, or is it a bit of a fad? Well, and I guess that taking that one step further then, kind of the whole hybrid remote working, are you seeing that that is becoming a, a kind of like the next wave of cross-border... You can work from anywhere in the world. And so therefore, when you're looking for candidates, you're not searching in a, in a narrow geography. You're now searching global and, and, and having people work from Spain or Taiwan or, or wherever. Or, or do you see in the sorts of positions, these senior positions that, that people come to you for, that actually know there's still geography, still a, a, an important factor? I think for global corporations, geography is less of a factor, but I think there are still some practical considerations as to where individuals can really be based. So I don't see a situation, or some people will say, it doesn't matter where someone's based. But I think in FS more broadly, and some of the big banks came out and said this fairly early, as we were coming out of the pandemic, we expect our culture is for you to be back in the office. Mm. And I understand that to a degree, because as when I, I make myself really old here, when I was growing up, individuals were around to help develop my career for me to learn from. That's harder to achieve from home if you're remote the whole time. I suspect the, the optimum is to have a hybrid situation, which I know will work better for different segments of society, the next generation versus the you know, older generation in terms of how they respond to that. But what we are hearing is that for tech in particular, 
if you're not able to offer hybrid working or even remote working and you enforce our policy is to be back in the office. I've heard some clients quote, we're losing offers, 40%, 60% of offers, because we're asking people to be in the office. And for the next generation, that's not something that they want to sign up to. So I think over time, I suspect there will be a greater impact or knock-on effect of that. I think for the leadership layer, you know, where we operate, there's some flexibility and we've seen a real shift. So you can be in the office, let's say, three or four days a week, but the expectation really is for most corporations that you that you would be in the office. And I can understand that. And as an individual joining an organisation to assimilate into a culture and the fabric and figure out how an organisation <laughs> lives and breathes and how decisions get made... Hard to do that through through Zoom or any other video platform for that matter. So I think it's probably a balance. That's what we're seeing. Yeah, I'm, I'm slightly startled by the, the 40%. But but when I, I'm sitting here considering it and thinking, actually, it doesn't surprise me because I think people want that flexibility. You know, you're quite right. I think if you're starting as a grad or you're in the early part of your career, you need to network because we've all benefited from the networks we've created. We probably didn't realise it at the time, but that's what we've done. We've got relationships that go back many, many years. So I understand that at that level, but people want choice. People want the ability to say, I'll go in two days a week. I wonder if it's the psychology of it. It's it, To your point, it's choice. I think not being given the choice in the first place yeah, is harder is i think is probably more more the issue yeah. and so if if you empower the workforce more to make those decisions maybe that would change the impact but i i think the workforce is a lot more empowered than it has been whether that will continue because of the broader macroeconomic geopolitical environment between now let's say and going into next year maybe maybe we might see a little bit of a shift as some organisations start to respond to what we're saying more broadly. To Matthew's point, I think the ability, therefore, to... It gives you the flexibility to attract, to cast the net wider in terms of looking for talent that's not limited to a geographical environment. So when we think about balance, seeing your family, if you have one, working out, whatever it is you want to do outside of work, if you are spending two... And it is down to personal choice, but if you're spending two and a half hours travelling into work and back... You could be doing all of those things in that time, still do the same amount of work, still be more productive, probably as productive, more productive, I would argue. (laughs) Be a happier individual, therefore, do more for your corporation. It has has a ripple effect, doesn't it? Just going back to what you were saying there, Matthew, I do, I think in tech in particular, I think it's always been a global talent pool. I don't know what that noise is now. So, so it sounds like the police cars have found who they were after. And they're rolling him in a barrel. Yeah, yeah, it does, sound, it does sound like someone's taking their wheels off. And they're kind of like... Oh, dear. Uh, the wheels off the skateboard. And they're rolling the hubcaps. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. exactly, exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. They're playing a game, roll the hubcap. That's why it's been in East London, right? That's why it's been in East London. Urban living, guys, urban living. Don't knock it till you've tried it. <laughs> so in the past... Going back a lot of years, banking was the career to have, the place you wanted to go, and arguably tons was spent in technology and all the latest technologies and stuff. And then let's say the crash in 2008 made it very unpopular to say you worked for a bank, and that was probably around then the rise of the tech firm and and the 
quirky tech firm culture that you could kind of hear about. Where do you think financial services is now in that kind of how do we attract new talent, you know, straight from uni or you know, early talent to come and join and be part of our firm versus losing them to a tech firm? And on from that is, do you think fintech's that answer and that's become really cool and popular or, or is it actually, no, there's still more that the banks are doing or the financial service firms are doing and and the shine isn't there on tech firms anymore? I think the shine has gone for, for many of the tech firms. But I think if we look back to 2008, I think financial services and the banks in particular had a lot of work to do around that time around conduct and culture. And what we have seen was a pivot in terms of culture and practices and ways of working. And some organisations, in fact, most, most of the banks, I think, came out on the back of that with a clear idea of the organisation they wanted to be in. They went through a process of redefining their values, communicating those and then make, and holding the organisation and the leadership teams to account to uphold those values. And so I think as a consequence of that, the banks are not what they were culturally and so I that is positive I still think that financial services the pace of FS the quality of the individuals that work within financial services the comp levels within financial services the global opportunity the career optionality open to individuals within FS continues to be attractive and actually through digitalization and banking in particular Tech is really interesting. You know, we all consume it every day. And for individuals coming into the sector and being able to understand and appreciate how tech is applied to financial services on a day-to-day -day basis, particularly around consumer financial services, is really interesting. Capital markets might be a little bit more nuanced, but I think FS more broadly as an industry is still really interesting and compelling but I think it's evolved. And there's payments. If you look at the payments space and how we all transact these days, I got a taxi here today, which I know is against my sustainability credentials, <laughs> but I paid with contactless. That it, it's, it's everywhere, from merchants, coffee shops, hairdressers. I just think the payments industry has exploded. The art of the possible with technology is vast and it's an evolving landscape and it's extremely exciting. So I, I think financial services is a kind of broader industry and in the, in the fintechs and actually the main universal banks are still great places to go and work. Just to add on the payment side, very, I mean, we, we talked about this yesterday on the call that we had. I think payments is that new frontier. People have talked about it in terms of payments modernisation, but I don't think they've really looked at it or broken it or decompiled it into its core components in the way that payments really operate from a commercial payment, from a peer-to-peer -peer payment, through to electronic payments, through to new regulation that's going to drive a different capability in payments. I think from a from a banking perspective, because that's what payments relates to, I think that's going to be really, really challenging. And I think that's, for me, that's the next wave of that fintech. That's the next wave where the fintechs are going to really have an ability to address some of that capability quicker and potentially far better in terms of that experience than the mainstream banks can shift that super tanker. The super tanker is brilliant when it's in a straight line because it's got momentum. And when you've got momentum, you've got that capability to deliver. What's difficult 
is shifting a super tanker. But just going back to that, just in terms of what you're saying and also just picking up on what Brian's just said there, the, the complexity and the intellectual challenge, for want of a better phrase, of trying to resolve the legacy with the new and driving that transformation at that scale with that degree of complexity is extremely interesting for certain individuals. And being able to straddle both, I think, to understand the legacy with the new and to create something, great product or platform, customer experience, whatever it is, is extremely rewarding. And, and what we have found is that sometimes individuals coming, let's say, from tech or some of the neobanks, mm. some of the startups, it's harder to transition or assimilate into more established organizations that are looking to traditional businesses looking to disrupt it's probably the better way of articulating it it's quite hard for them to be able to navigate their way through they're not used to that and they can get quite frustrated so they don't always always work we've all been around long enough to understand that at some point cybersecurity, which still may be the case if you were in cybersecurity, there was a huge demand for people that could really articulate the risk and then architect solutions and then create operational capabilities that supported that so that you the organizations could could attest from a regulatory perspective around what they were doing around cyber so what do you think or you're observing are the the next wave of or maybe it's just the old technologies could we still talk about resilience and recoverability and operational resilience what do you think are the next things that are going to be hot on the agenda from a skills and experience perspective in the market I think cyber is still very much at the top of that list and is and and is still probably one of the top three initiatives that any CEO is going to be thinking about, particularly probably also because of what's happening in the world currently, you know, and it kind of goes beyond necessarily, well, when you think about resilience at a kind of macro level, it's, it's still as important and that market is still as dynamic as it was five, five, six years ago. I think in addition to that, what we are seeing is a, I suppose, a greater focus on data. So, but it's the commercial application of data. So, so, yeah, exactly. So data analytics, understanding customer behavior, deeper insight into customer behavior that can inform revenue, new markets, as well as looking at efficiencies within your own organization. And I think the, the obvious one is tech. And I think the difference being with tech and not just thinking about the type of CIO you have, leading your technology organization, but actually also the individuals you have around you that make up your board. Tech is the differentiator today for many corporations. And so there is a growing focus on CIOs and kind of more tech savvy leaders than I think there has been before. And actually some of the work that I've been doing recently in the past 12 months, if I think about some of the COO leadership, you know, the thinking about who's leading the infrastructure divisions or the support functions, many of those opportunities are now led by CIOs. And so then you have this kind of, I suppose, rite of passage, CIO to COO to yeah. Yeah. either potentially CEO in some instances, that's quite rare. Hopefully that will change over time, but certainly more COOs becoming non-execs because they have that CIO background which is we think about digital and everything we've talked about then so last question from me and I'll I'll kind of wind us back to the first question we we talked about the great resignation and and then you referred to the great reflection but you said actually it might be a different R now and the retention 
So what, what are you seeing firms are doing to really to try and tackle retention and keep the talent they've got rather than having to, to keep coming out and getting new? It's a conversation we're having with many of our clients at the minute, actually, because the market is so dynamic for tech in particular, which is obviously my market. So I might be skewed because my focus is very much technology. Many initiatives, but I th- some of it is around the future of work. So can you work from home? Can you work from home, work from the office? Some organizations are trialing the four day week. Some organizations are creating more opportunity in terms of internal mobility or sabbaticals. So there are a number of initiatives, I think, that are taking place at a more strategic kind of enterprise level within corporations to think about how can we better support or create a more attractive, supportive environment for the people that that we want to retain in the organization. So I don't think there's one answer. I think there are many things that we're seeing. I'm not sure I can really point to one organization that I could say, I think this is the future. I think they've got it absolutely right. I think what we're seeing, it's probably too early for that, because I think many of these corporations are dealing with coming out of a, a pandemic for the past two and a half years and are adjusting to digital acceleration, getting people back into the workforce back into the office and then of course on the back of that we've got supply chain issues and inflation issues and a war and a host of other challenges systemically around the world so I think this year and going into next year I think there'll be a greater focus on how do you retain great people. So actually, my last, last question, because obviously the last question was my last question, but this is really now <laughs> my last question. So thinking about our audience here and, and lots of colleagues who work in financial services, what would you suggest that they need to do in order to get on the radar of Russell Reynolds for positions in the future? What a great question. And it's probably not just about Russell Reynolds. It's just more broadly, how do you make sure that you're visible and that you can be found and that you're known. Of course, we've talked a lot about digital. So I have to say LinkedIn, having a digital profile, and not just through LinkedIn, is going to be part of it. But that's minor. I think one of the, one of the greatest pieces of advice that I, I have been given, and I probably in turn share with other individuals that are ambitious, is to make sure that you build relationships and that you network. And sometimes those relationships are not inside your own organization or even actually inside your own industry. And so I think keeping an open mind and to make sure that you network, create opportunities to meet others and kind of put yourself out there in quite a targeted, deliberate fashion has If I look at some of the non-execs I know, that's how they got there. So it doesn't just happen by chance Mm. with an organization like ours that taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, look, we've got this non-exec opportunity. Most of our work really is about talking to people and understanding who they know that are terrific and exceptional and great. And and, And the way that they would know you is because you met them. Yeah. And you spend time with them. And so I think being on the circuit to a degree, attending the networking dinners, conferences, clearly be selective, not all of them, but the ones that, you know, but the ones that are interesting, yeah. they're aligned with what you're passionate about, yeah, interested in, I think probably would be one of my one of my main pieces of counsel. I think there is a cadre of people that that have got different ambitions as they progress through their career. Some who we all know 
just can't give up corporate life. And actually, the next job has to be bigger than the next job based upon some immeasurable quantity. Right? I have, if I've got 1,000 people, I need 10,000 people. If I've got 10,000 people, I need 50,000 people. If I've got this budget. But there are also other people, and I'd probably put myself in the hat of other director. Actually, what's important to me now is about the quality of the work that I do and actually enjoying the work that I do. And I'm not so fussed about titles anymore. The, the challenge is that sometimes organisations are polarised by their t- own titles. But the NED thing is a, is a very interesting thing because I think that back to that almost like that gig sentimentality. Yeah. I think I think the role of the NEDs, and that's changed over recent years in terms of the responsibilities of NEDs and the contribution of NEDs and their liabilities as part of that process, I think that's going to become more and more evident. And I think that will be, in a way, big gig because I think companies will be at a point on the compass and they'll say, right, we need to bring this capability in to help us move. The needle will move and then they'll say, as in, in any, thank you very much, you've done your two years, we now need an aid that's got this level of experience. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So I, I, what I see at the moment is when we think about the NED community and the individuals that are either experienced NEDs or becoming NEDs, I am focused on creating communities where we are working with CIOs and CTOs to help them understand how do they get there? What's the expectation? What is the CEO looking for? What are the members of the board looking for? And therefore, what do you need to be thinking about as you plan for this later stage in your career? And I think when we go back to all the things we've been talking about in terms of the pandemic, the reflection, mm. purpose, making a difference, having an impact, as a non-exec, you can do that because you can choose, yeah. actually, what are my interests as a human being? Yeah. So even if I've been working in a bank, actually, I might want to work for a charity yeah. or I might want to, well, anything. For some people, which is quite common in tech, I might want to work for Peloton as a non-executive mm. because a lot of the... CIOs are, you know, avid cyclers. <laughs> so, or but but have been or triathletes, you know. So, so I think being able to marry your interest or love of sport yeah. with leadership and and making a difference, and also it just makes your world just enriches your world in a different way, doesn't it? You've kind of got a broader perspective, and so if you're a CIO or aspiring CIO to be thinking about that next stage earlier in your career will then influence the decisions that you take. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like a maturity curve because it is that point where if, if you're doing something that doesn't feel like work and you're happy, so be it. And if you're doing something that makes you happy, you don't really care what other people say. Mm-hmm. And I think as part of that process, I think, mean, you know, People going out, suddenly people stepping outside of where we might have perceived through our own perception or experience of individuals, and they're suddenly saying, I'm going to go and do this work for charity. It's like, well, where, well, hold on, where did that come from? And then you suddenly learn a bit more about the individual and actually what's really fundamentally motivating at that point. So I think there's you know, I yeah. think a lot of change. and some of these corporations that I'm talking about, we don't have to mention the, the names, but our platforms. Yeah. And so actually there's this real... You know, wonderful synergy actually with the technology and the personal interest, yeah. and so it it kind of makes sense. Yeah. And so I think those opportunities are a lot more alive, prevalent now than they were ten years ago. Fabulous. So let's move on. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have? A crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. So, Claire-Louise, what do you think will be one of the most significant 
game-changing technologies for 2022 and beyond? And how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? I don't have a crystal ball. And I suspect if I did, I'd be a very wealthy individual. More than you are. (laughs) Smooth. (laughs) Smooth. (laughs) I know you bought the coffee, Brian. (laughs) Crypto, I think. And I know know that the shine is coming off crypto a bit. And one, one day... Crypto's crashing the world on the next day, it's conquering the world. But but I do think that the, the, the technology, blockchain, distributed finance, I think is probably going to be a game changer. Mm. I don't know how it will play out over time, but I think if I was going to point to one piece of technology or a kind of paradigm that I think will be the catalyst for significant change, I, I suspect it would be that. That's a good one. I don't think we've had that one before. Are you seeing a lot of interest in that with the fintechs that you work with or or where established firms are looking for fintechs to help them? It's a combination of both. So I think the established and traditional businesses are, are all focused on how do we leverage distributed finance and blockchain. And, you know, you have the custody firms, for example, that are creating digital vaults, for example, Digital custody is a is a big thing. I mean, that's a traditional business looking to digitize assets. So I think that's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you've then got the kind of the crypto NFT startups. So there's just there just seems to be so much going on at both ends of the spectrum that I think it's I think it will gather momentum. It just needs to like all like all new mm-hmm. tech needs to kind of settle down and find its way. Fabulous. Fabulous. Let's move on to the reason you're really here, the lightning round. Uh, We usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. So I'll start. So favourite book or movie? My favourite movie is The Grinch. My question, first concert you ever went to? Oh, gosh. I'm going to have to say it, aren't I? It's Shaking Stevens. (laughs) Did you you, you come for the green book? (laughs) I never tired of hearing that. Man. <laughs> I, I rehearsed. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> so, go on then. What, what was the last concert or live performance you saw? The last, oh, hang on. My last concert was not that long ago. And I saw several concerts in three days. I went to Glastonbury this year. And my, my favourite concert of that weekend was Primal Scream. Ah. It was extraordinary. Were they in Avalon or the acoustic? Because I used to, so I've been getting Glastonbury many, many times. And whilst the, the big stages are fantastic and you get all the big bands, but the Avalon and we were the acoustic bands, and you get, as my friends put the jiggy jiggy band, we just jump up and down a lot. Yeah, that's good. I think it was the John, I think it might be in the John, John Peel. I think it might be in yeah. the John Peel tent. And actually, speaking of John Peel, I saw the undertones. Wow. At the same time, actually, that weekend. Now, there you go. There we go. Yeah, there and Diana go. Ross. Yeah. You got, That's the thing about Glastonbury. You've got it's a, cousin, you got a like cousin called Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at this. I'm really good at this. <laughs> I bet you got your teenage kicks out for that. Though. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did. I definitely <laughs> oh, did. Oh, Mo- moving on. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I could do this all day. Favourite gadget or piece of technology? It's got to be my iPhone. I love my iPhone. As soon as the phone, in fact, as soon as the mobile phone came out, well, not the... 
the big one from the 80s, the one that looked like not a mainframe. The, not the Dale Boy one. Not, 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 that, not that one. <laughs> but I remember the first, my first one, I think it was a Motorola, that kind of little lid that flipped up oh, and it was flip. really yeah, small. Yeah. I loved it. And so it was, when the mobile phone came out, that's the one gadget that I've had in my hand every day ever since. Okay. But the iPhone, my iPhone probably... So I'm going to I'm going to ask you a question now that's going to really is going to leave you pondering for days. If you had to delete all but three apps off your phone, which ones would you keep? Well, I keep the internet. <laughs> Obviously, it's like oh, Desert Island Desk, oh, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so my contacts I'd keep. One more. The phone app to actually be able to call people. Actually three. And the internet. So a browser yeah. Contacts. Contacts. Yeah. And a phone. Yeah. Well, yeah, because if you, if you, if you, no point in having a, no point in having contacts if you ain't got a phone. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then okay. I'm sure I could start to download more applications because I've got access to the internet. <laughs> 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 okay. So g- given that, so, so what's your, what's your most used emoji? What a great question. I'm not really a big emoji person. I've got to be honest. That's well, because you're not a teenager. That's right. <laughs> that was harsh. Yeah, steady, Brian. Steady. <laughs> I've got good skin, you know. Um, let me think about this. I'd have to check my phone. <laughs> don't, let me check my phone. It could be something really. This, you is, this is this is where she goes to say, "Oh, I've got messages. I have to run. I can't finish." Yes, yeah, I can't finish the sentence. Is that the one we could say? I could say, "Pass." Yeah. Pass. I was going to say it, it might be. I think it might be the the laughing one. <laughs> oh, I think, it's the, I think yeah. it's the laughing one. Yeah, I think that's mine. You know, when the kind of the crying, the crying tears. It's the yeah. crying yeah. tears. I think it's that one. There you go. Um, so, who's been your mentor, or who've you been most inspired by? I'm going to go with someone who's really close to home because I think it's. I'm. There are people in the world you can that you look at and you admire, but you don't really know them because you haven't had any kind of cause to interact with them. So you your heroes and people like that, you don't really know what they're like. So I would, I will go with my mum. Yeah, so my mum was awesome. If if it wasn't for my mum, I wouldn't be where I am now. And and I don't mean that in a kind of gushy way, but I think it's the work ethic kind of making me do things I really didn't want to do. (laughs) (laughs) And actually with hindsight, she was right. Um, So yeah, I would definitely, yeah, I'd go with my mum. How did you stay productive and motivated during lockdown and working virtually? I had two awesome purchases in lockdown. One was, um, oh my gosh, what's it called? The 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 swing ball. That's it. Right. Swing ball. Right. I bought a swing ball for thirty five quid from Amazon, and the second was a repurposed spin bike from one of the spin studios in town. And so I think I hadn't, I'd stopped exercising really before the pandemic, just, you know, young twins and, you know, busy. And I, st- I exercised every day. And then with the kids, I play swing ball outside. So I think getting, just forcing yourself to step away from your desk and go outside and do something different. And with the kids was great for all of us. And then clearly the spin bite is we all know what the health benefits are of exercise. Mm. Need I say any more? <laughs> so what piece of career advice do you wish you'd given to your younger self? A couple of things, probably. I think probably not to take yourself so seriously, not to overanalyse things, and just to be a bit more relaxed in your own skin. You know, be, be, be confident with who you are. I think what I 
yeah, I think they would be my, I mean, I could probably go on. <laughs> that's that's part, of, part of my problem. <laughs> Overanalytical. Not to overanalyze anything. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's many more. There's many, many more. <laughs> Anyone got a piece of paper and a pen? I know, I know. Therein lies the issue, which is why, which is, which is why I say, don't take yourself so seriously. Don't overanalyze things. Relax. Okay, you have to sing karaoke. What song do you sing? Breakfast at Tiffany's. Who sang that? I'm not going to sing it. Hit my ear right now. Now you're going to. That's just you've yeah. done it to test me, haven't you? you... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it would, be, it would be that. I love. I love that. If it was. If it wasn't that, because we. Whenever we go to karaoke, we used to go to karaoke all the time. There were and there were two places in town, and I went to university in London. So there was um, was it called Lucky Voice, which I think was the, one of the first ones on one of the streets in Soho. I can't remember; it's so long ago. But we used to go with friends all the time, and so our go tos were either Breakfast at Tiffany's, and then the other one would be Neil Diamond, then some really cheesy ones, so Steps, Tragedy. S Club 7, Reach, you know, I could really, you know. Yeah. It's cheese. It's absolute, ab- absolute that's, cheese. That's, but, the, that's the blue but, ground from our But great fun. <laughs> <laughs> so when was the last time you used cash and what was it for? I used cash in Greece. We were on holiday two weeks ago. My son lost his tooth and I had euros. How does that translate for the tooth fairy? Well, let me tell you a story about this. So we we were having dinner at the restaurant, at this restaurant at the hotel, and we spoke to the waitress and we said, what happens in Greece with the tooth fairy? Does that, does that exist? Is there a whole different way of dealing with losing a tooth? And she said, what I do, or what I've always done since I was a child, I was given 50 euros. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Who gives a kid 50 euros for a tooth? Wow. But that is what she said at the table. How old's your son? Seven and a half. He's already tapped her up. And said, if <laughs> yeah. you say 50, I I know. I'll give you 25 to split. I know, I know. But then, but then the time, but then, but, but strangely enough, the time before that was my daughter in lockdown, lost her tooth and she got a pound. And they haven't, they haven't actually called me out on that yet. To say, no right. inflation. Yeah, oh, and yeah. I, I, that's a very good point. And actually, I will say in my defence... For your listeners, that I did not give my child fifty euros. Well, you don't. It's the tooth fairy. It was right? my husband that did. It. <laughs> <laughs> you just chucked him under a bus. <laughs> I have. I have. It was his idea. He oh, went with it. Goodness. He gave her. Yeah, he, ga- wow. he gave her fifty euros. I have, but, I have yeah, no follow-up question to that. Ice cream. Ice. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if you were an ice cream, what ice cream flavour would you be? I'd be a mix of chocolate and vanilla. Yeah, Viennetta. Do you remember that? <laughs> 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 the last time we spoke, we talked about Viennetta. In fact, Viennetta I think I even cream. sent you a text with yeah, a Viennetta in right. it a few weeks Those ago. slices of <laughs> chocolate through the vanilla ice yeah. cream. Yes, oh my mm. Taking me back in time. Wars Viennetta. There yeah, we go. There we go. Claire Louise, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, and thank you for coming into the office. We thought, I know the air conditioning was against us. And then obviously the streets of London with the police cars the circling for, uh, for Brian. Um, but uh, we've had a super time. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, lovely to see you. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed myself. Thanks, Claire Louise. Thank you. Thank you. To keep up with Claire Louise, please follow her on LinkedIn. We'll have links in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us directly through LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew Owen 
or our podcast on Twitter at dbtbpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and can leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that would be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas about future episodes or would even wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care.